Well, good morning. Am I on? Can you hear me? All right, we'll try it again. Good morning. There we go. We've now come to the time of the preaching and teaching of God's Word. So I'm going to ask you, if you would, please open your Bibles to the Gospel book of Matthew, chapter 6. We're going to be focusing specifically on verses 11 through 13. And before we read this, I want to give some reminders. Uh, the passage was selected because we as a church, over this past summer, we walked our children through this prayer. We were teaching them what prayer is and how we are to pray as Jesus taught us. And for those of you who were not here and you're wondering why you're, we're starting in the middle, this is part two. Okay? We went through the first half, it was back in August where we looked at his name, his kingdom, and his will. This morning, we're going to look at his provision, his forgiveness, and his leading. His provision, his forgiveness, and his leading. And I want to make sure that we don't lose the foundation that we had in part one. Okay, the foundation in part one we laid for why this prayer should be referred to as the disciples' prayer rather than commonly called the Lord's Prayer. And the reason that it should be titled the Disciples' Prayer is that Jesus himself did not pray this prayer, nor could he. You see, Jesus was sinless, and he never once in his life needed to pray, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Jesus was teaching the disciples, and he's teaching us how we are to pray. Therefore, it should be properly be titled the Disciples' Prayer. We also laid the foundation that this is a template for prayer. It's a pattern of how we are to pray in all circumstances, not what we are to pray word for word. And because it is a template, because it's a pattern that Jesus gives us, we have to understand the theological truths that each petition speaks of. If we misunderstand the theology that is behind each petition, then we will also misapply the prayer to our lives. So just a few pointers of reminder. We must remember, one, that we do not pray to inform God. We do not pray to convince God that we know a better way. And we also do not pray to change God's mind. For Scripture is very clear that God is not a man that he should change his mind. And we must remember that it is a privilege that God has given us to pray. It is by his grace through Jesus Christ that we can come boldly before the throne in prayer, calling on him to fulfill his promises. And it reminds us that we are in a constant state of dependence upon him. So when we pray with that understanding, then we will remain in a state of total and complete submission to God's will, bringing all glory to God, not to ourselves. So let us look at his provision, his forgiveness, and his leading. I'm going to back up a little bit. We're going to read Matthew 6, starting in verse 7 through 15. 
And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The first three petitions are Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. They stand independently from one another. However, the last three petitions that we're looking at, they are linked in Greek by the word and. You can clearly see it. It says, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. See, it tells us that life sustained by daily provision alone, it is not enough. We also need forgiveness of sin, and we also need deliverance from temptation on a daily basis. Martin Lloyd-Jones states that our whole life is found in these three requests, our physical needs, our mental need, and our spiritual need. And although we are asking for our needs in these three petitions, let us not lose sight that all three of them are bound in who God is. They are bound in who God is. So his provision, verse 11, his provision. Give us this day our daily bread. And at this point in the prayer, some of you, as many do, they like to say, finally, I can now ask God for what I want. But that thought quickly reveals the focus of one's heart. You see, as I said, this petition and the next two, although they do ask for our personal needs, they still rely solely upon God and who he is. Not who you are or what you think you may need. I had challenged the youth with a question when I was teaching through this, and I want to challenge you with the same question. Has there ever been a time in your life when you did not have something that you could not live without? Has there ever been a time in your life when you did not have something that you could not live without? For those of you that jumped way too quickly in responding in that, think again. Think again. Has there ever been a point in time where you did not have something that you could not live without? You see, to answer that question in the affirmative, that would require you to not be alive now. See, every single one of us in this room, believer or unbeliever, we can say with certainty that we have always had what we need to sustain life by God's common grace. It may not have been what you wanted or what you expected or maybe even what you thought you needed, but each of us have been provided what we need for this life. So if that is the case, if we really think through this, if that is the case, why do we worry? Why worry that we will not have something 
that is needed to live. And I want to talk a moment about how our worry kills our faith, how our worry kills faith. We do not have to look far after this petition to find Jesus' direct words on worry. If you look at Matthew 6, 25 to 34, Jesus himself says three times, do not be anxious. He says, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will wear, for your heavenly Father knows that you need them. You see, we cannot pray by faith, give us this day our daily bread, and then worry about whether or not God will provide. That is counterintuitive. Our worry kills our faith. Worry, what it says is that I distrust that God will provide exactly what I need when I need it. Yet, none of us here can say that there's ever been a time where we did not have exactly what we have needed to live. I'm not saying that you will not face difficult times, but it does mean that you should always trust that God will provide what he believes is best. And the key is what he believes is best. So why do we worry? Why do we doubt so much that God will provide our daily needs? I want to give two practical applications of where I believe anxiety or worry stems from, and they are simply the reciprocal of one another. First, most Christians are programming their minds with things of this world. Most Christians are programming their minds with things of this world. Studies show that viewing and reading habits of professing Christians are no different than non-Christians. Kent Hughes, in his book, Disciplines of a Godly Man, asks the question, how can Christians have the mind of Christ when their viewing habits are virtually indistinguishable from the world? What are we filling our minds with? What are you filling your mind with? Is it news, social media, secular music? Maybe it's athletic statistics? Or sitcoms that are destroying the father figure of the home and the covenant of marriage? You see, Satan doesn't care what we spend our time on so long as it's not on the Word of God. Kent Hughes, he goes on to say, it is impossible, listen closely, it is impossible for any Christian who spends the bulk of his time month after month, week upon week, day in and day out, consuming such media to have a Christian mind. And he goes on to say, this is always true of all Christians in every situation. A biblical mental program cannot exist with worldly programming. A biblical mental program cannot exist with worldly programming. Worry stems from a mind that is programmed by the world. And the second application, and as I said, it's simply the reciprocal of the first. Our anxiety arises due to a lack of a Christian mind. It's a lack of storing up the promises of God's word in our hearts and in our minds. You see, Scripture tells us that we must negate, we must remove, we must abstain from things of this world and be transformed by the renewing of your mind through God's word. This also points us to the second meaning of daily bread, the petition itself. For Jesus said when he was tempted by Satan, 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We are called, every individual believer, to store up his word in your heart. And this can only happen by being immersed in the word. Again, Kent Hughes, it was just too good not to share, so I got to keep going. He went on to say in his quote, you must remember this. You can never have a Christian mind without reading or listening to the scriptures regularly because you cannot be profoundly influenced by that which you do not know. You cannot be profoundly influenced by that which you do not know. And for those of you that are here that may be dismissing me at this point, thinking I'm being too legalistic, then maybe the very words of Jesus himself will stand. Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You see, if anxiety kills our faith, and faith comes from the word of God, as scripture tells us, then what would kill anxiety? God's word. God's word. And you cannot be influenced by that which you do not know. So this petition, give us our bread, give us this day our daily bread, it reminds all of us that we are completely dependent upon God and his word. And that is why we have to pray it daily, trusting that he will provide exactly what you need each day. Listen to Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. Listen closely to this. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. He says, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but today give me what is necessary to bring glory to your name. Let me be content with what you determine for me. One of the early church fathers, Augustine, said, Our daily bread deals with things that are necessary for living and not luxuries. If we truly focus on the beginning of the disciples' prayer, our hearts begin to focus on bringing necessities to God and not just superficial things. Or as one theologian said a little differently, the prayer is for our needs, not our greeds. So we are to bring necessities to God, believing that our God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So to pray for our daily needs and trust that God is faithful to provide. Do not be anxious about life. Don't be anxious about what to eat, what to drink, what to wear. For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. See, once we trust that God is faithful to provide each of our daily physical needs, we will then turn to our even more important spiritual needs, our forgiveness. Our forgiveness. 
Look at verse 12 as we look at his forgiveness. Petition number two, his forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. For this petition, we are going to quickly look at first what it does not mean, and then we will turn to what it does mean. So what it does not mean, and quickly, the first and the easiest point, this does not refer to a monetary debt, as some have attempted to argue. The debt clearly refers to our sins and our transgressions against God, and the debt is owed to God. He is the one who is offended by our sin. Secondly, Jesus is not speaking of the forgiveness that we receive at the first moment of salvation. Rather, he's speaking of a forgiveness that comes repeatedly as believers fight for holiness, yet we fall short. And lastly, this also does not mean that we earn God's forgiveness by forgiving others. For Scripture tells us, for while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. No one earns God's forgiveness. So now that we know what it does not mean, let's look at what it does mean. First, we have to remember this prayer is for believers only. It tells us that every believer will continue to fight against sin. And repeatedly, we need to seek forgiveness from God. 1 John 1, 9-10, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Another quote here, but from James Boyce, he says, When a sinful human being becomes a Christian, he does not cease to be a sinner any more than he ceases to be a human being. You see, a true believer will fight for holiness. But during this lifetime, while we live on this earth, we will continually fall short, and we will continually need to return to the Lord again and again to confess sin and ask God to forgive us out of our love for God, not to earn his love. John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Do you see the beauty of God's effectual grace? That we are, as believers, we are purchased out of our sin. We are made new creations, sons of God, heirs of righteousness, Yet we sin daily. And the only way that we can have confidence in salvation is because salvation belongs to God. It is given through Christ and it is sealed by the Holy Spirit. Even though we sin daily, only a loving, gracious, and merciful God can do that. We must never think that we have a license to sin or that we do not need to go before the throne to ask for forgiveness. See, evidence of true saving faith is a life of continual repentance and forgiveness. It is a fruit of our salvation. Secondly, every believer is commanded 
to forgive as you were forgiven. I'll ask again the same question that I asked to our youth. If I go over to my wife and I say, dear, I'm sorry for the way that I acted towards you and the way that I talked to you, will you please forgive me even though I was right? Hmm? Huh? Some laughed and some of you just went, oh, right? You could feel the tension, right? In the same manner, how can anyone pray to God and say, Lord, please forgive me for how I treated my spouse or how I acted towards my kids or maybe how I spoke to my coworker and I showed anger to my neighbor? I should not have acted like that. Forgive me, Lord, but they were wrong. This is the first excuse of man that was given to God. The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. I messed up, but you gave her to me and if it wasn't your fault, then it was her fault, not mine. Is that a contrite heart? Is that a heart that is broken over sin? Or is it a heart that is worried only about themselves? Christian, what right do you have to withhold forgiveness? What right does any Christian have to withhold forgiveness from someone else? None of us deserve to be forgiven by God in the first place, so how can we withhold something that was freely given to us? How can we withhold forgiveness and at the same time expect to be forgiven by our Father? You cannot be right with God if you are not right with others. And I want to speak for a moment to the non-Christians in the room. Those that are not born again. And I say to you, do not be deceived thinking that you are in right standing with God today as you live in continual and habitual sin. 1 John chapter 3 tells us very clearly that no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. But whoever does make a practice of sinning is of the devil. There is no ambiguity in that. Sin is real, hell is real, and God will not overlook your sin. Well, you say, but how can a loving God condemn somebody to hell for all of eternity? I'm a good person compared to others. But God says that no one is good. And the standard is not others, but perfection. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see, God is loving, but he is also holy. He is also righteous and just. And no one comes to the Father except through faith in the life and work of Jesus Christ. So read his word and see how God reveals himself to you through Jesus. And believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, whom was sent as your substitute. You must confess your sins and you must turn towards Christ as a new creation. As the word says, whoever has ears, let them hear. Faith in Jesus Christ is the one and only way to the Father. That is an absolute truth with no exceptions. And faith in Christ comes only through the word of Christ. Again, no exceptions. 
to read his word and believe in the Lord Jesus. For you cannot be saved apart from Christ. And you cannot know Christ apart from his word. They cannot be separated. Believer and unbeliever. Sin affects everyone. Listen to John MacArthur on the effects of sin. The ultimate effects of sin are death and damnation. And the present effects of unforgiven sin are misery, dissatisfaction, and guilt. The ultimate effects of sin are death and damnation. And the present effects of unforgiven sin are misery, dissatisfaction, and guilt. I want to be very clear here. For the unbeliever, the ultimate effects of sin are death and damnation. But listen closely, for the unbeliever and believer, the present effects of unforgiven sin are misery, dissatisfaction, and guilt. Sin is all of our greatest problems. And therefore, it is also our greatest need. Are you troubled by your sin? Or have you become numb to it? Do you even see your need for forgiveness? The Expositor's Bible Commentary states that once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves that we have minimized our own. As Scripture says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. Forgiveness is the mark of a truly regenerate heart. And I want to speak directly to the church family here today. I want to give a practical application point for all of us. Based on this text, if someone comes to you and asks for forgiveness, I encourage you, do not say, it's okay, it's no big deal, don't worry about it. They need forgiveness, and you are commanded to forgive. Tell them, I forgive you. Let there be complete peace between you and them as there is peace between you and your Heavenly Father. Our forgiveness for one another in this church should be a picture of the gospel to each other, to the children of our church, to the city surrounding us, and anyone else that is watching. Let us forgive one another as our Heavenly Father has forgiven us. We must forgive one another. We're commanded to do so. For if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 1 John 4.20 Church family, the challenges of life are difficult enough. We do not need to store up unforgiveness strife and discontentment between one another as well and eventually become numb to our sin. So let our forgiveness be a picture of the gospel. 
And this brings us to our last petition. Verse 13, his leading. His leading. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. This passage, it is highly debated, and oftentimes it's made much more complex than it needs to be. And because of that, it's oftentimes misunderstood and misapplied. And I believe it's a great example of why Scripture must interpret Scripture so that we avoid placing our personal opinions upon who God is. You see, you nor I determine what a good father does. Only Scripture does that. And just as an example, I love the point John John Piper makes. He says that no human father should send a famine on his children, and no human father should send one of his children into slavery to be the means of saving his brothers. But that is what God did. No one would say that a good human father takes the life of his child as a sacrifice for others. But that is what God has done. You see, there are numerous other examples within Scripture that shows what a good father is. And it would be contrary to what the world would say is good. But our God, he is not a human father. He is our heavenly father who knows all things, controls all things, and he alone determines what is good. And we know from his word that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So what does lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil mean? How do we practically pray this as Jesus taught us. The word temptation is what tends to cause the most confusion. And in Greek, it has no connotation of good or evil. It can be translated as temptation, test, or trial. So the context, the context in which it is used must determine its meaning. And we see the same word that's used in James 1, 2, and 1, 13. These are very well-known verses. James 1, 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And James 1, 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So if we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, we can see that we are to show joy when we meet trials. So the prayer is not to ask for no trials. And we can also see that without a doubt that God does not lead us in temptation in the sense of evil, for he himself tempts no one. You ask, so am I saying that God tests us? Absolutely, he does. We can look at Jesus as an example. And just a, a two chapters prior to this, in Matthew 4, 1, Jesus himself was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now listen closely. Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tested, but was tempted by the devil. You see, the testing was from God. The temptation in the form of evil was from Satan himself. And I want to be clear here, too. There's also a difference when it comes to us 
versus Jesus. You see, Jesus, he had to be tempted by Satan himself because there is no sin within Jesus. There is absolutely no internal desire for Jesus to sin, but only to do the will of his Father. But when it comes to us, when it comes to our temptation, rarely are we tempted by Satan himself. See, he is not omnipresent. He is not everywhere. Rather, we are tempted by our own sinful desires. The next verse in James, James 1.14 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So with those differences noted, the petition, Lead us not in temptation, must be read in context as a prayer to stand firm in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our tests. And when we are tempted by our own desires, Lord, deliver us from them. It is to say, Father, keep us from the situations and circumstances where we are prone to give in to our own desires and fall into evil ways. And Lord, when we are in those situations, give us strength to stand firm. Do not let us succumb to our own temptation. Do not let us fail to resist the pressure of my own desires. And God gives us hope in this. Listen to 1 Corinthians 10, 12 to 13. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 to 13. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You see, with the trials that we face, God always provides the way of escape. The question becomes, do you follow it? Do you even see the way of escape? Are you even aware that there is always a way of escape? Or do you only see your own desires? You see, the text does not say that he will provide the way of escape, that you shall endure it. Rather, it says that you may be able to endure it. And this is why we are held responsible for our sins. God provides a way of escape, but we are responsible to listen to him rather than our own desires. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Our flesh is weak, but God does provide the way of escape. That's why we must be watchful in prayer. So when that time comes, you take the way of escape that God has provided instead of succumbing to your own desires. See, God tests us in order to purify us and bring us to maturity of the faith. That's why we are to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James 1, 2-4. Be watchful 
Be in prayer, for your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. We pray, Lord, deliver us from evil. Strengthen us to stand firm in the faith, whether we are tested, whether we are tempted or tried. Because we need your strength, Lord. And we need your way to deliver us from our own desires. As a quick summary, to put this all together, looking at his provision, his forgiveness, and his leading. Specifically with his provision, do you pray and do you trust that God will provide exactly what you need for life each day? Are you content with what God provides? As Proverbs said, give us neither poverty nor riches. Is your mind being programmed by the world or by the word of God? For our anxiety will kill our faith. And we know that faith comes from the word and the word kills anxiety. So store up God's promises in your heart and mind and believe that he will provide. His forgiveness. What measure of forgiveness do you live by? For that same measurement will be used for you. May we as a church be a forgiving church that represents the gospel to all through our forgiveness. Remember that for, for by grace you have been saved and none of us have any right to withhold forgiveness from one, of a, from one another for it was freely given to us. And we must daily go to our Father for forgiveness. And lastly, his leading. We must watch and pray, for your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. Pray daily for strength and deliverance so that you can see the way out that God provides each time to you. And in those tests, choose Christ. Choose Christ, not your own desires. There's something so much better, for you are no longer a slave to sin, but you are a slave to Christ as a believer. So when we pray these three petitions, remember they are bound in the character of who God is and in his promises. And that is why we need to understand the truths behind them. I believe that there's no better way for us to close today than by praying through the disciples' prayer. And I'm actually going to be reading a Puritan prayer of Philip Doddridge. And he walks us through the template of prayer that we have been given. Please follow along as I read for our closing prayer. Our Father, you are seated on a throne of glory in the highest heaven, and we bow before your presence with humble reverence. Even so, we approach you with the confidence that we are your children, and you are our bountiful and compassionate parent. We join our prayers to you with hearts full of brotherly love and ask for each other the blessings we seek for ourselves. Above all, we desire your glory. May your name be set apart and holy. May the whole world of living creatures join us 
to give you the honor you so deserve and require. May your kingdom come and your will be done among us. Help us to know, understand, and pursue your kingdom. And may your will, always wise and gracious, be done on earth just as it is in heaven. Teach us mortals to resign ourselves to you in obedience, the same way your angels in heaven obeyed you. As for ourselves, Lord, help us not to seek the grand things of life. Help us not to worry about the future, but we humbly ask that you would open your bountiful hand, the one which we always depend. Give us our daily supply for what we need today, and teach us to let you take care of the rest. Though in many respects we have been disobedient and ungrateful children, Yet we beg you, compassionate Father, to forgive us our offenses. We know we are guilty in your book with debts that we can never repay. But please forgive those debts, even as we forgive others, even those who have offended and injured us. We ask for the same kind of pardon we are willing to extend to others. And do not bring us into places of pressing temptation, where we would lose our integrity and our soul would be endangered. But if we must be tried, graciously rescue us from the power of the evil one that, we, that he would not triumph. We know that you can do these things for your children, and we humbly trust you will, because yours is the universal kingdom, the fullness of almighty power, and the glory of infinite perfection. To you be the praise of all forever. Amen. So may it be. We sincerely and earnestly desire that you may be glorified and our prayers heard and accepted. Amen. Let us stand and worship together our Father for his provision, his forgiveness, and his leading. <clears throat> 